0: You all know why we're here. Our our world has changed and we're not even in the vicinity. Um, The Russian invasion of Ukraine, when we decided to do this event, it actually was the Russian challenge to Ukraine because before the 24th of February, no one was quite clear what the level of intent was. And now we know, now we see, now every news bulletin is a horror and we're just the ones looking on. So this Nordic Horizons event takes on quite a different shape, Um, not just because we now have a whole series of issues as as countries, as responsible countries, which you might argue um, the UK is doing better or worse at as ever. Um, There's issues to compare with our Nordic neighbors, like treatment of refugees, like sanctions, but the really big, big issues at the heart of it is the whole question of security now, especially because um, some of the Nordic countries share a land border with Russia. Um, Essentially, they all share a sea border in that the Baltic snakes its way up to St. Petersburg. Uh, And the security of the whole area has been called into question by uh, the events in Ukraine. We have uh, a very mixed Uh, bag, if you like, of of Nordic countries. Sometimes when people refer to the Nordic model, there's a suggestion, there's just one way of doing something. Um, Tonight will prove as much as anything ever proves that that's not true, because there are different takes currently on NATO membership. Um, There is different uh, arrangements regarding membership of the EU, There are quite different outlooks and traditions in the the Nordic countries, three of whom are represented here tonight. Although I would actually say that pretty much all are represented tonight because the speakers that we have, we're very lucky to have, uh, are well able to talk about the perspectives of other neighbours. So uh, let me just introduce them now and uh, we will hear from each of them in turn. Uh, First of all, we have uh, Hans Moritzsen who's a senior researcher in foreign policy and diplomacy at the Danish Institute for International Studies. Um, Eva Neumann, who's director of the Friedhof Nansen Institute, uh, which is an independent foundation that researches international environmental uh, energy and resource management. Even has had a, an extremely distinguished career. He was a senior advisor to the Norwegian foreign ministry. Uh, he was professor of international relations at LSE, And that was just after he spoke at an actual physical Nordic Horizons event uh, in Edinburgh in 2013 about NATO membership. So that's almost 10 years ago. Uh, Perhaps quite a lot has just changed. Uh, Johanna Vorelma is postdoctoral researcher at the Centre for European Studies at the University of Helsinki. Um, her primary research interest is in political language, trust, mistrust in international politics, the use of facts and political rhetoric. Um, and we have from Scotland uh, Lynn Jamieson, who's Professor of Sociology of Families and Relationships at Edinburgh University. Her own research interests globalisation and personal life, the environmental and sustainable lifestyles, European identity, and much more besides. And she is Chair of Scottish CND. So uh, quite a lineup there, and uh, let's just start off then with uh, with Hans Muritsen. Um Hans, I'm just going to ask everybody this uh, same question at the beginning, which is essentially where is your own country coming from in terms of its security policy, NATO and Russia, and has that changed in the last two weeks?
1: Yeah, it, it has. Uh, first of all. Uh... Thank you for, for inviting me. I should say that. Uh, thank you so much. In Danish politics, I can tell you that uh, we can see that politicians, you can even what you think about them, they, they have a sense of timing. I mean, that, that's that, that job after all. So they have just, they have just uh, decided about new defense spending. So now we should just, uh, spend the 2% on, of GDP. Uh, not this year, but from uh, 25, I think they've just made a a big decision about this. And uh, a, a second thing is the, the 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 stationing of U.S. soldiers on on Danish territory, also in peacetime. Uh, we had a decision from 1952 where we uh, the Danish politicians. Uh, Said no to such a proposal, uh, but now this uh, this uh, this has changed. So now uh, now we can have uh, American soldiers, equipment, airplanes, and so on uh, on Danish uh, Danish territory in peacetime. So that's also uh, a new thing, and. First uh, of June, it has just been—I uh, think it was yesterday or, or, or a couple of days ago—it was announced that we are going to have vote on on the uh, on on our defense opt out. We have a, as you may know, we have a defense opt out from from the EU, uh, and uh, if we if th- this should be changed, we have to vote ab- about it again, and that will take place on 1st of June. So so you can see the politicians have a a sense of how the wind is
0: blowing. Denmark is a member of NATO. Yes. How long ago?
1: Uh, From the beginning, from 1949. So that's that's a quite old thing. Uh, Actually, I can tell you that in the beginning, uh, the the population was very hesitant about NATO because uh, we had been negotiated about a Nordic, a Nordic defence union, which was almost uh, coming into existence, but uh, it fell on Norwegian, uh, Norwegian uh, and, uh, assistance. But but so so it took some time for people to adjust to, to NATO. But today you can see the opposite people. People uh, are very fond of NATO, and very few people would like to to leave NATO. So,
0: does that mean, though, in real reality, there will be American troops in Denmark this year?
1: Well, not this year, but but uh, in a couple of years, uh, that will happen. Yeah, yeah. And it- then
0: finally, this vote that you mentioned about the defense opt out from the EU. Mm. Um, what what does that mean i mean what what are you not doing as a result of the opt out that will change if, if you go in
1: well it means that we, we cannot participate in the eu eu missions military missions but uh, we we can still participate in the political side of it so and and as you may know denmark has been active militarily by, uh, in nato and and uh, on bilateral basis, so it doesn't mean so much, but symbolically, symbolically, it, it does mean something.
0: Okay, um, right, let's speak to Ivar Neumann uh, next uh, from Norway. Ivar, um, can you give us Norway's position on security? Russia, you have a land border, um, and how that's changed, perceptions have changed in the last two weeks?
2: It has indeed. Uh, Norway is a NATO member from the very beginning, like Denmark, uh, but we voted no to the eu twice so we're not a member of the eu but we're a member of the european economic area so there is extensive uh, economic integration but not so much in terms of formal political integration there are of course informal stuff and there will be uh bilateral uh, maneuvers uh, with uh eu nato countries like uh, denmark and also Nether- the netherlands uh so this makes Norway sort of in betwixt and between in terms of, of security policy. And um, the, what has happened over the last few days is that, or the last few weeks, is that we are following Denmark, basically. Uh, that, that seems to be the deal. So for example, we, uh, we only started sending weapons after the EU had decided to do so. Uh, the, the government made an ab- 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 about turn 24 hours after they had decided not to send weapons for, for reasons of caution and prudence, uh, they decided to follow the EU. And uh, I think that was a political necessity. I mean, When Switzerland is sending weapons, you, as a NATO country, you kind of know that it's time to step up. The, in terms of party politics, the traditional no-to-NATO to party has been uh, the Socialist Party, which actually broke out of the uh, broad... Uh, sort of um, broad church Labour Party on this very issue in 1961. So they have as their foundation no to NATO. And now they've started uh, discussing it. And they just had their, their annual conference where they did not decide to go in for NATO membership, but they did decide to start a debate, which is quite interesting in a Norwegian setting. If nothing else, then Putin has certainly managed to galvanize the Norwegian people. On a personal note, I may add that I wrote an op-ed the day after this started and said that we should think through whether we wanted to send weapons or not, because although it would be a very good thing to strengthen Ukrainian resistance and send a message uh, against the aggressor, it would also mean that Ukraine would uh, be encouraged and we should stand by that encouragement and not so that it wouldn't be a fair weather weather friend thing to do. And I was inundated with my mails from people I did not know or people I'd met 20 or 30 years ago saying, this is really disappointing and how can you? And We must stand up and uh, long live Ukraine and the whole caboodle. I I haven't experienced that that before. So um, there's a groundswell in the country on behalf of Ukraine, which I find to be very interesting indeed.
0: So to be clear then, was your argument that Norway should be careful about handing in weapons to keep a war going that Ukraine looks likely to lose?
2: I pointed to the possibility that that might actually uh, heighten the human suffering, but uh, also that uh, if we were... With other countries in sending uh, military support, it would be a different situation. The reason why I did that was because of the sort of immediate sort of gung ho. Uh, we've got the Gatling guns reaction of the Norwegian uh, people to this, which which is a good thing in the sense that people want to stand up for the principles. But it's always a good thing to think through the actual long term. Consequences of what you do. And I felt that uh, there was little debate on the actual consequences of sending weapons. Um, So it was an interesting experiment for me as as a rather hawkish security person (laughs) to do, you know.
0: Right. And then, as as regards Norway, you do have a land border with Russia. Uh, We have a
2: 196 kilometer long land border in the north. And it used to be the only place where NATO and Russia squared off direct. But that's not the case anymore, because with Russian forces in Belarus, it also means that uh, that there is a direct confrontation along the so-called Suwelke gap, stretching from Kaliningrad in the left and uh, along the Polish-Belarus border. So we're not alone in, in having that confrontation anymore, but we used to be.
0: Does it give you any extra cause for concern or does that, that particular border look like the least of Russia's worries at the moment?
2: At the moment, yes. But the job of a security analyst is not only to think through what happens tomorrow, it's also to think through the consequences a year down the line and then also the accumulated consequences. That's important. What Norway has been trying to do has been to... Uh, to uh, To do deterrence through NATO, but also to, uh, like Denmark, to to do certain self, to to, to put the country under certain self-restrictions. For example, we don't allow military maneuvers close to the border in East Finnmark, that is the part of the country closest to Russia. We stay off that. We haven't had uh, troops stationed permanently on on Norwegian soil, like the Danes, etc., these things now seem decidedly wobbly and they've all sort of particularly these sort of permanent presence has already been sort of undermined. And uh, again, there's the galvanization of Norwegian security policy behind NATO as a direct result of all this.
0: And one last question for the minute, Eva. Um, There used to be, I understand the case, that nuclear submarines, NATO submarines, didn't come into Norwegian ports
2: it was a, it was a don't ask don't tell kind of situations we don't know whether that actually happened because we didn't we didn't uh, actually ask for for declarations about it but we made it clear that our policy was that submarines shouldn't come if they carried nuclear weapons uh, so whether or not it happened we don't really know so it's a very very Norwegian thing to do actually to say no 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 you shouldn't do it but not verifying mm mm-hmm.
0: Well, let's speak to Johanna Vorelma. Johanna, hello. Yes, hello. Now, obviously, you're the country with the biggest challenge uh, with that long, long border with Russia, with your own history as well of, of almost so much of it must feel like a kind of, well, not deja vu for any of us because we weren't alive in the 1940s. Can you just give us a little bit of your history and how Finlandization has come about a, a, a catch word, if you like,
3: that people may understand? I uh, guess, thank you. Uh, well certainly here in Finland the war has caused, you can say shock waves across the country. Um, you mentioned Finland has a long border with Russia, thousand and three hundred and forty kilometers. Most of the Finns know that. That figure by heart. Um, the history has been very sort of, there has been a lot of aggression from, from Russia over the centuries. Um, there have been several occasions, um, most recently during the Second World War when the Soviet Union launched a war, actually very similar to what we see now in Ukraine. And there's been a lot of comparison between the Winter War and and this, uh, and this attack, and there are certainly some similarities, also, also differences. During the Cold War, as you mentioned, Finland was forced, you can say, to choose the policy of neutrality. It was a success story in many ways compared to other neighbors of Russia that lost their sovereignty, uh, but what... Um, the the price Finland paid was what is called Finlandization, meaning Finland had to compromise on its sovereignty, had to let the Soviet Union to sort of implicitly and also explicitly influence its politics and society. Before Russia's attack, there were four principles that really guided Finland's foreign and security policy. First of all, uh, close cooperation with, uh, with Finland's Western partners, including uh, NATO, other Nordic countries. Finland is not a member of NATO, and this is something that has been a, an important principle in, in, the Finnish, in the Finnish policy. Secondly, credible defense capabilities, including general conscription. Thirdly, active involvement in multilateral arrangements such as the UN, other international organizations, and fourthly, good relations with Russia. And now clearly the fourth principle, good relations with Russia, this is out of out of question. There's really, it's very difficult to see that there, there would be a, <clears throat> a return for a long time, which actually means that Finland now needs to really rethink its, its basic principles. Um, and currently, Finland is. Um, I mean, there has been a sig- significant impact on the public opinion, also policy discussions. Finns have really, sort of, you can say, historically turned actually in favor of joining NATO. This has been a major shift in in the polls. This was um, it, there was uh, there was one poll just uh, so about two three weeks before the. Uh, before the war started, and then another one two weeks later, and there had been a massive shift in uh, in favor of of NATO. So now, uh, this is something that I mean the public opinion is is uh, is now looking actually similar to to Sweden. There was there has been a similar change. Um, there are also two citizens' initiatives on NATO membership that have gained enough signatories to pass on to parliament, and this is something that they have to now take into parliament discussion. The first one is demanding a referendum on NATO membership. The second one demands that Finland uh, joins NATO without any any referendum. Uh, so really, I mean, citizens in Finland are sort of forcing politicians to take a stance, because this is something that there has been a very hesitant, very passive discussion on NATO. So all of a sudden, we see a very active, very open Discussion on on NATO. After some serious hesitation, Finland did make a policy shift to send armament to Ukraine. This was something Finland was one of the last uh, states to actually make this decision, and there was a lot of public pressure here in Finland to you know to do that. Many were saying like, "Oh, we can't be the one who who doesn't do it." So there was a lot of public pressure, and then finally Finland did. Um, make this this decision, but this is a historic decision because um, traditionally Finland is not um, sort of, you know, this is even, it's in the government program that um, there's no armaments sent to, to conflict areas. There's a very significant nuclear project, Rosatom-backed nuclear project that has been halted. Um, this is something that was a, a big decision here, a bit similar to Nord Stream, uh, the second Nord Stream project. So this is something that is now is not moving forward. Um, and also a lot of active diplomacy taking place between Finland and its Western partners. For example, President Ninister was visiting uh, Washington a couple of days ago. He met Biden there. there was uh, There was a lot of sort of publicity for that that meeting and tomorrow we just got news that he is, uh, the president minister is going to call Putin. And um, he's now saying that we actually need to continue sort of um, having dialogue. Now the very big question here is Finland, uh, Finland's NATO membership. Some experts in Finland are saying that there are now active preparations taking place to start the negotiations. Um, They are saying that first, what needs to be done is to secure uh, security guarantees uh, for the application period, because it's very likely that Russia would react aggressively to the announcement that Finland is supplying. Other experts are predicting that Finland is simply strengthening its military cooperation with NATO and other Nordic countries instead of actually um, seeking membership you can say that there's a consensus here in Finland that if Finland was to join NATO, it would have to happen together with Sweden. Now, this is something that is also has been in the polls. When Finns are asked, they would say that, yes, if Finland and Sweden join together, then um, there's higher um, percentage uh, for applying uh, NATO membership. It's very likely that the next election will be NATO election. So there will be one major issue on the agenda, and it's the, um, the NATO membership. Um, the, um, I actually, when it comes to the referendum on, on NATO membership, I sort of consider that as not a very good idea for for two main reasons. I mean, first of all, it's very likely that there would be some information warfare coming from from Russia trying to influence the the public discussion here in in Finland. And it's one of those very delicate uh, topics um, to to actually have a referendum. I would rather have a... If Finland was to join, it would have to um, happen through... Uh, parliament, sort of taking that decision through uh, representative democracy. Second point is that um, I'm not sure how knowledgeable we as citizens can be about all those pros and cons about uh, Finland joining NATO. I mean, this is a lot about identity, as we we all understand. It is not only about security; it's also about... Uh, the uh, the very long sort of uh, question about uh, the identity in Finland as, as being non-aligned militarily. Now, when I'm listening to the political leadership in, in Finland, the main message that they are delivering is to say, we have to remain calm. We have to remain very sort of balanced, not to start panicking, not to make any Decisions, sort of too emotionally. I know
0: this might be a bit difficult for you. Do you think Finland should join NATO?
3: Um, before the war, I thought that the the current arrangement is is you know good for the stability of of the wider region. Now I'm sort of, I am, I I I have. Sort of, I'm, I haven't made up my mind yet, but I have. I'm, my thinking has changed. Eva and uh, and Hans, what do you think
0: Finland and Sweden should or will do? Eva, first.
2: You know, we should keep in mind what what President Minister of Finland did immediately upon Putin trying to uh, talk about Sweden and and uh, and Finland not joining NATO. When Nynisto said that, you know, this is entirely up to Finland. So uh, we, the rest of us may have opinions, but it's extremely important to keep in mind that this is actually a sovereign decision. Uh, I've been watching, I'm a Russian speaker. I've been sort of researching Russia for almost 40 years now. And uh, I think we are back to a situation of repression that is such that uh, the situation is, is internally, it's in a, a couple of ways worse than it was during the Cold War. I lived for the first time in Russia in 1980, and then, there, for example, if you were a member of the Russian Academy of Science, of the Soviet Academy of Sciences, you were fairly safe. You, you, even Sakharov, when he was in, interred, he was treated with respect. The way academia is being pressured into signing up for the war now is worse in my book than, than things were when I lived there. So, uh, so uh, with that shadow looming, I would say that Sweden and Finland's uh, taking the final step is long overdue. Uh, No, not long overdue, but is overdue once this war is on. And I must also point out that um, just like Norway cannot eke any closer to the EU without being full members, one could argue that Sweden and Finland cannot eke any closer to NATO without actually becoming full members, so that would be my line.
1: Mm. Hans? Mm, Yeah, if it's the same question, um, there's a Swedish saying that that says that, sit sit down and sit sit still in the boat when the wind is blowing. And uh, I think that is the line that that both Swedish and Finnish politicians will uh, follow. And I can can actually see the wisdom in that. Uh, So, so, uh, you know, Sweden and Finland have decided to go hand in hand, as I think Johanna mentioned that also, which is a very wise thing that if they join NATO at, at all, they will do it hand in hand because you cannot have one of them joining and the other not joining because that would would give some unintended uh, consequences that we can take later, perhaps. but but uh, yeah, I, I would say sit sit down in the boat uh, just for the time being.
0: Okay, well, let's bring Lynn Jameson in at this point. Lynn, are you are you unmuted? What do you make of what you're hearing here?
4: Well, of course, I'm I'm a chairperson of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament and uh, our position is that we want Britain to give up its nuclear weapons uh, as a part of trying to get rid of nu- nuclear weapons for, from the world. And also, and so we imagine if we ever become an independent Scotland, it will be a nuclear uh, free Scotland. It will not be nuclear armed. And we would also advocate them not being in NATO. So I can understand why this is now a debate in Finland and Norway Um, are thinking about it differently too and Finland and Sweden are thinking about joining NATO. I can understand why it's like this but I would just point out that NATO is still badged as a, a nuclear armed state that has not renounced the first strike use of nuclear weapons and that I think from our perspective is um, although there's absolutely no forgiving what's happened, and I'm certainly not making any excuses for Putin or trying to imagine that he's in any way reasonable or rational, the, the way that NATO has come closer to his borders um, is part of the backdrop of the tension and the continued construction after the end of the Cold War of uh, an alliance that was as if in opposition to Russia in a sense that he can now regurgitate back in his rhetoric um, and excuses, it hasn't been helpful. We can't just carry on with this rhetoric and actions of seeing more and more and more. We have to um, go in a different direction.
3: And I'm also a bit worried about this, about sort of, we just had a discussion on Monday evening in... um, uh, here in, in Helsinki, where um, where one of my colleagues he was um, he's a professor in world politics and he said he is sort of um, very worried about sort of we are starting a, a, a third world war and you know that will involve or include nuclear weapons. And um, so I mean this discussion is is on at the moment. Also, um, I I'm not sure how to, I mean, these are very big questions and something something definitely uh, that we need to to keep right. on. So. Okay,
0: um, thank you. Um, I'm seeing lots of questions coming in here. Um, I'm just working perhaps from the start, which I don't know if that's the right way, around, but it's where it's going. John Bryden, are you still with us?
5: Yeah, I asked a question about, um, there hasn't been much talk about the European defense initiatives, but actually uh, on 1st July, Denmark will vote on, uh, on whether to join these. And my impression is that there is more discussion now about the European, uh, have, Europe having an o- its own defense initiative. We don't know what shape that will take, but we know there are a couple. There's a European Defence Fund, and there are European Defence Agency, and there is what you might call an emerging defence policy, stimulated, of course, by the present circumstances. So, I wanted to ask the panel: um, you know, could they? Do they think that is uh, a realistic uh, idea to take forward? in future as an alternative to a nuclear NATO?
0: Right, that's a very clear question. Um, Does any of our speakers, Hans, Eva or Johanna want to come in? (laughs) And can I just lob in that there is also Nordefco which is a joint defense union between the Nordic countries already. So could any of those be beefed
3: up? I can just note here that the Finnish Policy has been in in recent years, especially during ministers' presidency, has been precisely to strengthen European defense uh, capabilities, and this has been a it has been seen as an alternative to NATO membership. He's been talking about this uh, for in in gen, in numerous occasions, uh, but realistically, at least before the current situation, this has not been moving, moving really forward. So I don't think it has been a, a credible alternative. Now, I mean, it's not, I mean, um, John mentioned that uh, an alternative to nuclear NATO, I mean, of course, it also involves nuclear uh, states. Hans or Eva, have you got a view on
2: that? The, the lesson that Norway took away from it being occupied by the Nazis for five years during the Second World War, was A, neutrality doesn't work and B, Sweden is not necessarily to be trusted on military policy. The Sweden as a neutral country was supposed to uh, not let uh, let uh, foreign military personnel through, but there were 2 million individual troop exports in and out from, Ger- from Germany and Denmark via Sweden to Norway during the second world war and Sweden pretended not to notice. And now I'm not really sort of sort of revving up a big attack on Sweden here because in order to actually get by with the neutrality, they had to, to, to look the other way. But it, it, it tells you something about the viability of Nordics pulling together when it comes to defense policy. It's not going to happen. My worry is very different. My worry is that in three or seven years, we will have an American president, the foreign uh, policy agenda of, of whom we know nothing about. It may be an isolationist, maybe a gung-ho militarist, what's happening inside the Republican Party is is leaving democratic politics behind. And with that kind of situation, on our hands, the way to go is to strengthen EU defense policy. And it's such a pity that that Britain left, because this is where Britain would have had something to offer Europe. So uh, there you have my sort of uh, happening, as it were. Mm
0: -hmm. Right, and what a sobering hapenny that is. I mean, that's right enough because if you're if you're thinking about permanent changes, for example, for Finland or Sweden into NATO membership, you are accepting that the lead power of that grouping is the United States, which could well have President Trump back in five years' time. Horrific thought, but but very possible.
2: Also, very sobering, actually.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: That's a good point. That that uh, with uh, the US is so volatile and you you don't know who, who's uh, who's in charge next time perhaps it's the same uh, the same guy as last time uh, so so uh, we don't know that uh, and we also saw that uh, even during uh, Biden the, there was a lack of consultation between the US and the Europeans in connection with Kabul the, the Kabul debacle so so uh, of course, it's a good thing with with uh, European defense, but it takes a takes long, long time to, to develop, and uh, but now you heard the the, the, the German the German uh, Chancellor uh, Scholz who who made an, a significant speech last week. So uh, it may be it may, may be developing, but it takes it takes a long time. And uh, the, the thing about non-nuclear, yeah, but you all the, the UK and the French ha- have nuclear weapons. So, I mean, yeah.
0: OK, um, John, Brighton, do you want to just come back and Have you got the, what's your own thoughts on that, your own question?
5: No, I mean, I think we we are at a moment when we should develop a European defence initiative. I mean, when Mr. Trump was in America, people were very nervous about NATO. They've forgotten about that now. But as you said, it it, uh, is likely to come back at some point. We don't know when, but it is likely to come back. And it will come back more and more because they have stopped feeling so responsible for the European European situation and they want to devolve responsibility to us and indeed they were part of the force behind the original defense policy in the 1950s if i remember america was actually pushing europe it failed at that time but i think uh, <clears throat> i think that eastern europe is particularly interested in this and we we know the border countries are interested in it so I think we're uh, at a moment when that could see some light of day.
0: Earlier, um, we heard from Eva, who was talking about Kaliningrad, which was a place on the map I had no understanding of till I looked at the map um, and saw this exclave. It's like a little outpost of of Russian control that sits on the Baltic between Lithuania and Poland, I think. Um, And there was a, a commentary here in Britain that a possible endgame or purpose or strategy of President Putin was to try to create a corridor between Kaliningrad and Ukraine, um, which again places a lot of importance on the Baltic because Kaliningrad is Russia's only ice-free port.
2: Well, the, the, the if, if you look at the map, there's K- Kaliningrad and then there's Belarus, the white Russia, and then there's, then there's Poland. So, uh, and, and uh, next to Kaliningrad, you will have the Baltic States. It's the new border between uh, Russian armed forces and NATO forces. So uh, if, if Russia made a corridor through that, it would link Kaliningrad to the rest of, well, to, to Belarus, which is effectively under Russian military control. And it would also cut off Poland from the Baltics. So it would make uh, NATO territory non-contiguous which would be a large challenge in terms of tactics and strategy. So it, that would be an obvious, an obvious sort of Russian thing to do. Um, so the Suvalki Gap, for those of us who've lived for some years, we will we will recall the Fulda Gap in Germany, which was sort of central, sort of front line between uh, the Warsaw Pact and NATO. Now the Suvalki Gap uh, has become the direct uh, line of confrontation between military forces on either side. So it's it's a place to watch. It's not necessarily the place to watch, but it's a place to watch. That's the basic military logic.
0: Um, I wonder if you think, though, I mean, we're looking at what's happening at the moment. It, it would seem that that the Russian advances are extremely slow or grinding to a halt in some places. Now, I appreciate everyone has an emotional investment in hoping somehow that this all goes wrong and that Um. they have really, you know, that the reports of people deserting, of lack of good military planning, all of these things just bring Russia grinding to a halt. And I suppose people look at the size of Ukraine and think, how can any army occupy 44 million people worth of a massive physical country? Mm. And then you think, really, could you then think that Russia would try to reoccupy Estonia or Lithuania I mean, is, is, is any of these, this does this seem to you to be viable?
1: Well,
2: we're now in the realm of speculation. So that's sort of the entrance ticket here. And I will answer your question on that basis and that basis alone. So um, Russia is now deployed so heavily that they cannot stop this without getting something back. The Crimea, the uh, so-called People's Republics, probably a chunk of territory that would link those two together along the uh, the Black Sea Line. Um, the weaknesses that we've seen are, are basically due to two factors, I think. One is that uh, there is very sort of little what you call interoperability. It means connections between land forces and air forces, which is an historical weakness of Russian military forces. We saw the same during the Georgian war in 2008. The other one is that uh, rumor has it, this is again, uncertain. Rumor has it that uh, maybe a third of the Russian troops in, um, in Ukraine are actually um, are, a- are actually conscripted, which is interesting because it goes against Russian, Russia's own laws, which says that you can't send cons- conscripts uh, uh, abroad. So rumor has it that these people have been uh, made to sign six-month contracts before going, and that most of them, maybe all, had no idea what they were actually going to be used for. So small wonder if that would explain the very low morale of these troops. Right? A third problem is that Russia has a doctrinal sort of way of looking at things, which means that when a conflict doesn't really go all that well, it's upgraded from local to regional. And the answer then is to bomb more. So the logic is a very sort of, it's a tankist logic. You know, The more, the more it takes to win, the more you will bomb basically. So the US in the Vietnam, in, in Vietnam, if you like, which is not exactly doing any good. Right? Uh, so there are a number of reasons why these operations are being slowed down. The problem is that they may not actually stop the fighting because it may only make Putin keener on actually finishing what he's started. So, however uh, low the morale, however bad the, the war, actual war fighting. They have a hell of a lot of troops. Now, to your last thing about occupation, the, the, the plan seems, Plan A seems to use if they're going for occupation, which is a, a big if, but if they go for occupation, that seems to be to send in the National Guard, which is different kinds of paramilitary police forces, 360,000 of, of, of them, and use those. So Russia would be very thinly spread, yes. So they would be taken up with all this. But so rationality would dictate that one would hold one's horses. However, there is also the military logic that you start doing side, side sideshows. Again, in Vietnam, it was Cambodia. And one of the places to look for first then would be Moldova, uh, Georgia, of course. And only then you would start sort of the NATO thing. But uh, I think the NATO deterrence factor is so heavy that... uh, that, uh, that's a long way off. Sorry for being a bit technical and long there.
0: No, that was very very clear. And just just while you're just to finish that thought and to see what Hans thinks, was it was it the right thing for Estonia to do? For example, all the Baltic republics to join NATO. It, you know, in, in in many ways we're hearing earlier, some think that's the excuse, if you like, or that that's the enlargement, the encroachment across to the east of Europe that gives some sort of spurious vindication to what Putin thinks he's doing?
1: Well, I think uh, in 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 hindsight, it it, it was a good thing. Uh, But uh, the the sad thing is that that Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania have turned their back to, to Russia after gaining membership because the idea was before they they, they, they came so far. The idea was that if they got the, the security of NATO, they could be more open and, uh, and, uh, and more positive towards Russia. You can always say, who, who is the blame here, but, but uh, yeah. So, so uh, that, that, that's one thing. I would also mention in connection with the Baltic countries uh, to, to, uh, to add to what Eva said about uh, the Suvalki The Suvalki gap. There's also the island of uh, the Gotland, which is very important for the Baltic countries, because if 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 the Suvalki Gap is cut off, then the only way that that NATO can can assist the Baltic countries is by having Gotland, which is Swedish, as you all know. So so and that could also in the worst case, that could also tempt Russia to take, all. Oh, let, let, let's take Gotland so NATO doesn't take it. So you see, there's a tense situation about Gotland and we saw that a couple of weeks ago when the Swedes uh, fortified Gotland a bit. Uh, so all these things are connected.
0: Right, Grosh. Um, I see another question. What about the situation with the Arctic and the Arctic Council? Um, in fact, I think the Arctic Council has just ceased as suspended operations because of Russia's presence on the council. Um, so it's not clear what what, what, well, what can actually immediately happen there. Um, and seeing other questions, i just wonder if anyone wants to come on and ask them. To, I don't want to put anyone on the spot. David could Somerville. I, could, I
2: respond, could I respond to yes? the Arctic thing, Leslie? Yeah, please. Um, so it has ceased operations, but um, and, and the, the chairmanship is, for the time being, Russian. Uh, but the Arctic Council, uh, I think a number of countries, and certainly Norway, will keep on planning for the reopening of the Arctic Council, because it's too important and low-key to, to be given up. Uh, so uh, so uh, watch that space. Uh, there, there is another sort of, uh, sort of in, interesting organisation in the in the high north, which is the Barents Sea region, uh, the Barents Euro uh, uh, Atlantic region, where Euro Arctic region, where Russia, Norway, Finland, and and uh, and Sweden are cooperating, not only on a s on a on a state to state level, but also on the local level. The basic idea when this was set up in the uh, 1990s was exactly to try and insulate uh, regional politics from state to state politics. And that worked during the Kosovo crisis in 1999. But then with Putin coming in and centralizing the country, it didn't work so well anymore. But uh, Norway still has quite an investment in citizen to citizen relations in the high north. So that will not be given up easily.
0: I have a question here from Scotty, um, who says, there are reports President Zelensky has cooled on NATO membership. Um, Now, let's just discuss this, what this potential best scenario is. I mean, I know this is, in a sense, a ludicrous conversation because we're sitting with a country that's being pulverized as we speak. And yet, what is the best possible outcome for Ukraine? It's not as if NATO is actually motoring towards wanting Ukraine to be a member. Um, So Scotty is asking, do you think if, if Zelensky is not trying to become a NATO member, would that be enough for Putin? Would it also cool Finland and Sweden's interest in joining? Hans had his hand up.
1: Yeah, I think uh, that's of course a difficult difficult question but uh, if if you ask it I, I would say the the best solution would be a swedification uh, like uh, or Finlandization but but um, when I say swedification I mean uh, Sweden's decision in 1949 when they were offered NATO membership just like Norway and Denmark then the Swedes said uh, no uh, no thank you because if, if Sweden had joined, then two days later, Finland would have got a letter from Moscow saying, inviting them to join a, a, a military alliance with, with the Soviet Union. And then you would have a border down the Botany and Gulf and the, the Baltic Sea, a direct border between Sweden and, and, and uh, the Soviet forces. So that was actually a wise a wise decision by Sweden to stay neutral uh, and uh, one one could want that, that one could wish that that Ukraine had 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 uh, decided for such a solution, but uh, it, but that would also require, of course, that the Russians on their side should stop exercising with one hundred thousand soldiers on the other side of the border. So it would be a quick pro quo, of course. Uh, but that would ideally be be the best solution. But it may be it may be, uh, it may be Uh, After the war went going on now, it may be uh, it may be impossible.
0: But however, it didn't look as if whether Ukraine wanted to join NATO. I mean, Eva, it didn't look as if NATO wanted Ukraine.
2: Definitely not. Um, There was a long debate on 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 Georgia in 2008 and Georgia was lobbying hefty for NATO membership and uh, it didn't happen. Uh, Russia was militarily active then as well. Um, we have a bit of a problem here because uh, the, the Western support is being offered on the principle of the world order that uh, sovereign states should have their own say in their own, uh, should have the final say in their own affairs and that borders should actually not be violated. And uh, this conflict, I have a hard time seeing this conflict being settled or being diffused uh, without territory changing hands, which means that the actual principle on which the whole thing is predicated is actually in principle up for grabs. That will be the tough one. And uh, seeing the Ukrainians um, sign away uh, the uh, the two Donbass so-called people's republics in their present form, or even with, with, with them sort of actually covering the whole counties and pr- probably even more territory will be extremely, but that will be tough going. So, uh, so that's 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 the thing. Uh, the uh, the uh, there was a question from someone about uh, how to amplify um, sort of go between third state uh, sort of th- third state roles, um, back channels, etc. Um, we cannot know this, but I'm quite are convinced that these things happen as we speak, there is no dearth of third third-party counties that are offering their services. Uh, Turkey has been hosting talks. Um, Israel is uh, is there. China has chimed in. Probably countless more. Um, this is all good news.
4: I would prefer to see uh, an organ a strengthening of organizations that are not military as, you know, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe was heavily involved in 2014, 2015 in trying to, in the failed Minsk agreements, um, trying to, but they were the only serious attempt in a sense to, to resolve this, it's, you know, there's a lot of discussion about that, it's not my field of expertise. Um, It seems that they were not necessarily completely uh, well drafted, but they were they did involve all sides. There was discussion and that was um, a European wide uh, security and cooperation arrangement that um, I would like us to be learning to be better at diplomacy and discussion rather than having to recreate new defence organisations is my feeling about it.
0: So Hansen, Eva, just those questions that still remain then um, about the, 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 because it's not just that one nuclear site, obviously Chernobyl strikes fear into the heart of everyone with just one name, but there are other uh, nuclear power stations. Do you think they're being targeted? Is that, or is that just, just, you know, part of the crazy collateral damage of this war?
5: Well, again,
2: in the realm of speculation, the whole idea of using live ammo next to a nuclear plant is interesting. And it could be one of those flukes of warfare, but it could also be that Russia wants to send a signal that it's a bit high-handed about its use of, 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 of nuclear capabilities. Uh, the, uh, the assassination of Litvinenko was, was made using polonium, which is a radioactive agent, so, and, and Putin has actually threatened. To, uh, to use technical nukes uh, three times now. So that's, that's uh, this is what we're up against. And uh, I can't say I'm particularly happy at the thought. Um, basic problem when it comes to the new European order that we will see sort of emerging now is that uh, it's an historical um, normalization. The historical pattern has been that Russia has been militarily strong and uh, good at disinformation and uh, intelligence work. So those, many would see those as weapons of the week. And that has been sort of juxtaposed to European dynamism in, 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 in economic and political models. So, uh, so what appears as military strength, I think, is a thin cover, a veneer, uh, over a, simply a lack to be politically and economically savvy. Sorry. And Putin hasn't really done much to fix his economy, which is the basic problem. Even in mom, even a non-Marxist like me, you can see that. You know.
0: So, where where do you think we're just just briefly, Aver? Where do you think this is going now? Where's where's the war going in Ukraine? What moves could happen? Will happen next?
2: If we're lucky, Putin has given up the plan to occupy the entire country, and will end his war of aggression by taking some. Some 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 territory and insisting on some kind of 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 neutral stance. Uh, That's the I I can't see any more positive scenario than that. Some people and would it would it
0: help Would it help then if if that was to happen? Would it help for Ukraine to try and join the EU? Because it's not like the EU have fast tracked their membership application either.
2: Well, Van der Leiden have made sounds in that direction, but uh, what is being said? In, in a peaked situation like this may or may not hold up. It would be unprecedented. And particularly with the bad experience with UK membership, I think Europeans will think once and twice and thrice before letting a country in without making sure that it's ready.
0: Thank you every, everyone so much uh, for, for just really broadening our minds on, on so many fronts tonight. Um, thanks to Independence Live that um, have streamed this out as well to all the crowd funders who've helped us put these events together. Um, We will be having another event around the time of the local elections here in Scotland, which will be looking at Nordic models of truly local democracy. Um, But for the meantime, thanks to all our speakers tonight. Thanks so much, Hans Moritz Eva Neumann, Johanna Vorelma, and Lynn Jamieson. And um, thank you very much, the Nordic Horizons team. I would say safe home, but you're home already. So I hope that for you is a safe place tonight. Thank you.